It was one of those headlines that demanded uh, an audience. The headline said, Americans are losing confidence in the nation, but still believe in themselves. It was a summary of a 2012 survey and a study that was conducted by the Aspen Institute, uh, funded by the Atlantic, which they polled over 2,000 Americans uh, and found interesting but yet unsurprising that uh, Americans' confidence in every institution in American life, and it didn't matter if it was politics or education or religion or even the family, confidence in those institutions uh, has been waning and declining. Uh, there is one confidence that Americans have not declined in, but rather have increased in, and that is their uh, self-confidence or their confidence in their own abilities. And at that time, back in 2012, the study had shown that over 70% of Americans believed that they are capable within themselves to work hard enough to achieve and accomplish anything that they wanted to in life. Now, remember, that was in 2012. That's 11 years now, and a lot has happened since then, and a lot more devaluation of American trust into uh, institutions has uh, further devalued. And the, uh, the commitment to the self as the, the greatest and sole object of confidence has certainly only gotten better over the years. And that makes sense, doesn't it? It's logical to think that if everything else is corrupt, if everything else doesn't hold to the philosophical ideals that I have set up for myself, uh, and, and or doesn't work quickly enough for me and what I would want them to, then I, of course, would turn into myself to find the source of truth and confidence. After all, I am the only one that I know of that agrees with me 100% of the time. I have a firm grasp on reality. I am the only one with pure intentions and correct assumptions, or so we think. There's no better example of the delusion of self-confidence than when I used to watch American Idol. I've never seen a full season of American Idol because I would only watch for the first five episodes because they were the most entertaining, in, in, in my opinion. Uh, the first few episodes uh, uh, were, uh, they highlighted the initial audition of the good, the bad, and the ugly with an emphasis in the ugly. People coming that were, uh, it didn't matter the level of talent, every single one of them came in there fully confident that they have the talent, they have the personality, and they have the ability to be the next American idol. And under normal circumstances, uh, confidence is coupled with competence, but not always. Sometimes confidence is, is uh, coupled with ignorance and arrogance or even delusion, and, uh, which is the case for a lot of these American idol auditioners. But in the real world, who actually lives this way? The data from the Aspen Institute may indeed reveal that there is self-reporting going on, that people have more confidence in themselves, uh, in, in themselves and have lost confidence in most institutions. Um, but who actually feels that way? Uh, most counseling centers right now are so backlogged with insecurities and people with mental health disorders 
that they're booked from, from now until Christmas and even beyond that. Christians are certainly not immune to this sort of uh, mindset. On top of all the worldly pressures, uh, we are often plagued with a lack of confidence in our standing with God. Many of us struggle with the same sort of reasoning that Paul details out in Romans chapter 7, where he asks the question, if I'm a real Christian, if I have uh, been saved from my sin, then why do I keep on sinning? If I'm a Christian... Uh, then uh, why do I keep doing those things that I know aren't right? And if I'm a Christian, um, these sorts of questions come in. Does God actually love me? Or does he only love me when I'm good? Can I lose my standing with him? Is the fact that my life is a mess indicative of my lack of faith? Or have I blown it completely? It's that mindset now that Paul comes to Romans 8. If you were to describe Romans 8 in one word, that word would probably be assurance. Or another word might be confidence. This is our fourth message in Romans 8. And, every, uh, and with every section of this amazing chapter, Paul keeps heaping on reason after reason after reason of why we can have confidence in Christ. And especially right off the bat in verse 1, Paul tells us that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has borne that condemnation on our behalf. In the second message, we learned that we can have that, that confidence because we are children of God. We've been adopted into his, his family and we can reach our Heavenly Father 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. He will hear us and he will act. He is a good father to his children. And last week that we can have confidence in what God is doing in the future. That regardless of what our past has said, that our future is still well open in front of us with God's grace and his mercy. And everything that we experience now is just preparing the way for something more glorious. And now in verses 26 through 30, Paul tells us that we can go against the grain of the world's insecurities because God sends help in the person of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit convinces us that God is at work in every single circumstance of our lives in order to make us more like Christ. So I know that, uh, that Dave had already uh, read this passage, but let's look at these amazing words one more time together, and then we will really get, uh, get into this. Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not, um, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us, or for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. So wherever you're at, God is offering you today a confident life 
in the Spirit. Therefore, we must first lean on the Holy Spirit's help. Lean on the Holy Spirit's help. If you were to have any characteristic that you don't currently possess, what would it be? Maybe some of us would want a, a talent. Uh, maybe some of us would want to be bilingual. Uh, perhaps a few of us would want to be better communicators, better writers. Maybe we'd want to be more patient. Maybe we'd want to be more disciplined in our lives. Maybe we'd want to be more loyal or conscientious. Maybe we'd want to be a better parent or, or uh, a, a better son or a daughter. Maybe some of us would want to be stronger, whether it be physically or, or mentally or socially. Or perhaps you would just enjoy being more resilient, being able to bounce back from those things that life heaves at you. Or how about this one? How many of you would choose weakness to be your chief characteristic? No? Why not? Because most of us don't see weakness as a desirable trait, but rather a shameful one. Uh, Ian Marcus Corbin from the Harvard Medical School has studied uh, the quality of life of stroke patients. And in a 2020 article from the New York Times, an opinion article, he noted that far too many uh, stroke uh, patients consigned themselves to a more private and solitary life in the wake of a stroke. Not out of uh, practical inability, but he notes that it, it often comes out of shame. Post-stroke isolation is one more symptom badly compounding the, the uh, damage done by the stroke itself. And studies show that stroke patients' social networks tend to uh, contract in the wake of a stroke. Why? Well, the causes are not perfectly clear, but he says that we can say this. Too often in America, we are ashamed of being weak. We are ashamed of being vulnerable and dependent. And we tend to hide that shame. We stay away. We isolate ourselves rather than show weakness. Now, I would argue that Corbin's scope is far too small. The aversion to weakness is not an American thing. It is a human thing. Every one of us does not believe weakness is a, is a virtue. Find me anyone, in any country, in any culture, at any time in history, in which they have valued weakness as a culture, you won't find one. And if you do, the time that they existed was probably very, very short. But yet, as Christians, one of the best things that we can do for ourselves is not only to admit our weakness, but to embrace it. The gospel itself is predicated upon the fact that you and I are morally weak and totally unable to save ourselves. If you consider yourself morally strong, that's a sense of pride which is powerful enough to, to send us to the grave. Instead, Scripture continually points us to the fact that we are weak and dependent, but we are not hopeless and we are not helpless. And that's a great combo. Our, our strength 
is to be found in God and in God alone. And in him we find our hope. In him we find our help. And one of the areas that we are all weak in is prayer. Who among us can say that they are strong in prayer? None of us. And so in verses 26 through 27, Paul gives us this uh, amazing news about what is provided for us in our union with Christ. God gives us the help of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. You know, one could argue that all of Romans 8 is describing the help that we have from the person of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit here is to intercede for us in prayer when we are simply beside ourselves in weakness. This verse is connected to the, the previous verse in which Paul details the fact that life is very, very hard. And we can see traces of the fall all around us. Creation does not behave in the way that it was created to. Yes, it's beautiful, but it's also very destructive. And it's not very compliant either in terms of being cultivated and fruitful. We feel the effects of the fall in our relationships. We feel it in our communities and also in our, in our bodies. So what are we to do while we wait for the restoration of all things? We are to pray. And just as everything else is affected by the fall, so is our skill in prayer. There are times in life that we face that are so difficult, so painful, and, and so confusing and scary that we can't even communicate to God what we're feeling. There are times when all we can do is cry and sit in silence. Times when the news from the doctor is very grim. Times when you are fearing for the direction that your child is going in. Times when you are betrayed by your spouse. Times when it feels like your world is crashing down. Times when you are so depressed that you don't even know how to function, let alone get out of bed. When the dark night of the soul sets in and you can't see in front of you, it's in those times that we see the deep reality of the fall and the groanings of the heart that are so deep that we don't even know what to say. And when that happens, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we don't know how to pray or what to pray as we ought. The Spirit takes those incommunicable desires and feelings that we have that are so deep and he translates it uh, to Christ on our behalf. And we know from verse 34, which we'll see next week, is that when the Spirit goes to the Christ on our behalf, that God the Father actually hears it because Christ is our intercessor to God the Father. The Father hears what we cannot utter because the intercessory work of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He goes on in verse 27 now. He says, And he, being God the Father, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
Now, this is a very, very difficult verse to understand, and I'm, I, I'm not sure I have a full grasp on it, but what, I, what it seems as if Paul is saying is that when we do have words to pray, our prayers aren't always answered, are they? Sometimes they're seemingly not answered at all. Sometimes they're completely opposite than we would have ever asked God. And there's a lot of reasons uh, for that, but verse 27 is concerned with the fact that we don't always pray according to God's will. Much of the time we pray according to our will and just hope that it's part of God's will or that God would change his plan that was set from eternity past to our desires right now. But when the Spirit intercedes for us, he always prays according to the will of God. I think author Tim Keller says it best when he once wrote that God will either give us what we ask for in prayer, or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. That's profound. And the beauty of verse 27 is that when words can't adequately communicate God the Father knows our hearts. He knows the mind of the Spirit. And he always goes with what the Spirit prays for. And that's good news. If the Spirit of the living God who indwells in us as believers helps us in our weakness, then why would we not embrace our weakness? Why would we see the path to glory as anything uh, but weakness? Friends, abandon your strength and lean on the help of the Holy Spirit. Second, we need to adjust our understanding of our circumstances. We need to adjust our understanding of circumstances. We have this great help in the person and work of the Holy Spirit, but in verses 28 through 30, Paul answers a more fundamental question that that often will come up. Why does God allow tragic things to happen in our lives? I mean, if God truly loved us and wanted what's best for us, then why do we have to endure such hard things? Suffering can be so intense and consuming that it is really tempting to... uh, blend or incorporate or syncretize a biblical understanding of the purpose of suffering with a worldly one. And what I mean by that is that there's a temptation for the Christian to view suffering as the world views it with a little bit of God language sprinkled into it. Such a Christian cannot escape a worldview that has really only one of two conclusions. Either God does not care about our suffering or he is not powerful enough to do anything about it. And a truly biblical understanding cannot hold to either of those. And so Paul's answer to to this question um, requires us to have a, a massive paradigm shift in our understanding of suffering in our lives. Now verse 28 is very, very familiar to many of us. However, the verse can become very problematic unless we uh, break it down and connect it to the context of verses 29 through 30. So what comfort can we find in our sufferings? Listen carefully, Christian. He says first, and we know. 
we know. Whereas in verse 26, we don't know what we ought to pray for. Here in verse 28, there is something that we do know. And what we know is that for those who uh, love God, all things work according, together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. There's a lot there in that sentence. So let's, let's, let's break that apart. First, who is this truth for? This truth is for the Christian it is for the one who has seen the beauty of Jesus, who has repented of their sins and have turned to him as the only source of their good. They have trusted that his life, his death, and his resurrection is, is efficient and sufficient for their salvation. Be careful, though, here. There is not a conditional statement here. It is not as if anyone on the street can just all of a sudden love God enough for any reason apart from Christ that would be enough love for them in order to get to be with God. No, Paul is assuming that if we love God, then we have also trusted in Christ. We cannot love God apart from him. It is impossible for someone to believe without God's work of grace first working in their heart. Romans 3, verse 11 through 12 says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Romans 8, 7, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It isn't able to. There's no ability. So when God says that this promise is for those who love God. He is talking only about Christians. So this statement and everything that comes after this statement is radically exclusive. It is not available to the world. So what is exclusive? It's, it's purpose in all of life. Now go deeper in here. And, and, and we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good. And we need to push pause here for a second. What does Paul mean when he says all things? Call me crazy here, but I think he means all things. I think he means the highs and the lows. I think he means the, the summits and also the valleys of life. It is the graduation from high school. It's also the broken bones. It is the joy of your wedding day and the final goodbye. It is seeing your children born and then having to see them leave your house and actually grow up. It is uh, the accomplishment of a lifelong goal and the exhaustion of chemotherapy. It is forming a friendship and the bitter betrayal. We know that for those who love God, all things, all things, everything in life work together for good. Now notice what Paul does not say. He does not say that all things are good. From a biblical worldview, cancer is not good. Divorce is not good. Blindness and deafness are not good. Rape and murder are not good. This is not part of God's uh, original design. Trauma is not good, but that doesn't mean that they're not useful in God's meta-narrative of what he is doing in the grand scheme of life and also in your life in particular. Nor is Paul saying that everything is going to turn out well in this particular life. If that were true, then perhaps Paul wouldn't have been beheaded by the Roman government. 
When Paul says that he's working all things together for good, it is as if he is saying that every day in our lives, regardless of the good situations or the badness of events, it's a piece of the tapestry that God is putting together for our eventual glorification. That is the goal. And how do we know? Well, the end of verse 28 says that all things are going to be worked out for those that are called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? Look in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That word foreknew there, it receives a lot of of misunderstanding. English isn't quite able to uh, get at what Paul is saying here. Many of us would say that, that this term means that Paul is looking down the spans of time and seeing who would love him, and then he sort of works all that out. But that's not what Paul is saying here at all. The word for new here is something more wonderful. It is one of intimacy. It is often referred to in Scripture as the intimacy between a a husband and a wife. Not not in the the sexual sense, but in a relational sense. There is this bond, there is this closeness, this strong love. And so Paul here is starting to lay out God's eternal plan of the glorification of believers. And it starts with God's love and intimacy for you and for me before any Adam had ever existed in the universe. And that's good news. That God loves us and has loved us before we even existed. And if you are in Christ, you occupied a special place in his heart before all of creation. Do you think that anything can break that? We'll see next week that the answer is no, it can't. So there was this prior love that God had for his children above anything else. And It's what Paul says next that tells us his purpose for it all. He says that it was to be predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Hold on here. What is God's purpose for us then? It is to be conformed to the image of his son. God's goal for us is to be like Jesus. And if we think that we can become like Jesus without suffering, then we don't understand the gospel. But as it is, if we are in Christ, that whatever we go through in life, God is using it for good, namely to make you and me and every other Christian on earth to be more like Christ. John puts it this way in 1 John chapter, uh, one ver- uh, chapter 3, verse 3, when he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be in the future has not yet appeared, but we know, there's that term again, That when he appears, we shall what? Be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And we're not there yet, are we? Every single one of us who is in Christ is a work in progress. That little by little, inch by inch, we are progressively becoming more like Jesus. And when suffering becomes intense. We can lose focus. What we see right now is just a, 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 a tiny 
blip on the map of God's work in our lives. And, and that's why Paul ends this section here by zooming out and getting us to see the big picture of what God is doing. It is this picture that you and I must continually put before us when times get tough, lest we forget. And it says here, in verse 29, Paul showed us two things from eternity past that God did. First, he loved us before the foundation of the world. Then he predestined us to be like Jesus. <laughs> now in verse 30, he moves into real time. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. This is a different kind of call that everyone gets when they hear the gospel. Most people hear the gospel call and they reject it. Say, I don't want anything to do with that. But this call here that Paul is talking about is an effectual call. It is when God sends the Holy Spirit into the heart of, of, a, uh, of someone to quicken their dead heart and quicken their dead spirit to become alive again to Christ, and they believe. They can't believe without the effectual call coming into, your, into their hearts. This call, then, which is such that one can't reject leads to justification. And we saw justification a few weeks ago is that legal standing that we have with God that we are in the all clear. All of our sins have been removed from our account because everything that was on Christ's account is now on our account. Verse 1 gives us that beautiful promise once again that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now what Paul does here at the end is really quite interesting. He says those he justified, he also glorified. Now what's interesting about that is that he writes it in the past tense. As if it's already done. But for any of us that have breath in our lungs right now, do you sense that you've been glorified yet? How many of you here are perfect? Well, good, I don't see any hands. I see you put your arm around your wife, so it wasn't an, an arm being raised up there, Jeff. But, but in describing this progress of salvation, Paul is saying it's as if it's done. This is in the bank. It is completely fulfilled in Christ. When he said it is finished, means it is finished. Take it to the bank. If you're in Christ, anything that comes your way cannot ultimately harm you. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And life right now, friends, may be extremely difficult for you. And this passage is telling you and it's telling me that we can have confidence that though our world is crumbling around us and though we might not have the ability to pray as we ought to, nothing, no disease, no financial calamity, uh, no injury, not even our own sin and our own foolishness, Nothing in this world can ruin God's plan for you. That is good news. In Job 42.2, after a long and, and um, arduous season of suffering, Job finally says to God, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Christian, do you believe that? 
Do you believe that your suffering is purposeful in the story and the plan of God for you? Lean on the Holy Spirit. Reorient your understanding of suffering and trust in the God who works all things for our good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray.